passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Go ahead and take your outlines out. Uh, while you're doing, I just have a quick photo I want to put up for you. Go ahead and throw that up. Thank you, Jeremy. Does anybody know this person that I'm standing next to? Anybody recognize her? Who is she? Sydney Powell. Uh, you better know, Thelma. Yeah, it was uh, one of the neat parts about pastor's appreciation is sometimes people give you the opportunity to do some things you wouldn't normally do, and I was given a chance to go uh, hear her speak, and she is General Flynn's lawyer. So this is inside information, getting a chance to understand what it's like uh, in the government. And her whole thing is she's dedicated her life to fighting corruption inside of our government and inside of our courts. And she talked about some of the things with General Flynn's case, and she talked about other cases, and how many times in our government there is great amounts of corruption that takes place. And it's very difficult to undo. But corruption in our legal system is not just something that happens today in the modern world. It's something that also happened in the ancient world, and it's been going on for years. In fact, today as we study the trial of Jesus, you'll see that it was corrupt from beginning to end. Last week, you remember Pastor Jordan was up here and he preached on the arrest of Jesus. I was actually in Spencer preaching on the very same thing. It was a pulpit swap Sunday. I guess Jordan forgot to tell you it was a pulpit swap Sunday, so a whole bunch of you texted me on Sunday afternoon asking if I was okay and what happened to me. So that's what happened. It was a pulpit swap Sunday. Uh, but he did a great job, as he always does, teaching on that. And so today we're moving from Jesus' arrest. We're going to look at Jesus' trial. And just so you know, Jesus goes through two different trials. He goes through a trial before the Jews in the Sanhedrin that we're going to study this morning. Next week, you'll see he goes through another trial before the Romans, which is the one that actually decides to execute him, because the Jews don't have that power to execute him. He goes through six different parts of his trials. So the Jewish trial, well, he'll be in front of six different courts or judges, and the same thing with regard to the Roman trial next week. Or, excuse me, he'll be through three different courts and judges with the Jewish trial this week, and he'll be through three different courts and judges with the Roman trial next week, making a total of six different courts and judges he has brought before from the middle of the night to morning. And if you think the, judge, the legal system moves slow, well, for Jesus, it moved extremely fast because they wanted to get him on the way to crucifixion by 9 a.m., so he would officially die by 3 p.m. Today, as we study Jesus' Jewish trial, we're going to do this from two angles, because Mark gives it to us from two different ways. First, he'll give it to us from the lens of Jesus and what he went through, and then he'll retell us the same thing from the lens of Peter, who was right there just outside of the courtroom where it was taking place. And we'll see what we can learn. And we'll learn, by the way, that Jesus is a man who is courageous under pressure, while Peter is a man who becomes a coward under pressure. Before we jump into the trial itself, it's really appropriate I begin with some background. And the background I want to give you actually comes from the book of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy was literally means Deuteronomos, which is the second giving of the law. After the Israelite generation had wandered in the wilderness and the new generation was about ready to go into the promised land, in about a month, uh, Moses wrote down Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy has a retelling of the Ten Commandments, a retelling of the moral life, a retelling of the spiritual life that they are supposed to follow once they get into the promised land. It's a refresher course for the new generation. And right smack in the middle of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about the judicial life and the courts and what the courts are supposed to be like in Israel and what the truth and justice is supposed to be known for amongst God's people. Let me read this for you. And you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Israelites took this charge to being a very just society incredibly seriously. We've already seen what the Israelites are like when it came to obeying the law of Moses and how fastidious they were in following every single legal command. You can imagine how incredibly fastidious they were at following every single judicial command. In fact, over the years, they had gone out of their way to develop a very sophisticated judicial system to make sure that truth and justice was carried out. They had defendants' lawyers. They had prosecutor lawyers. And they had all these kind of things in place. At the time when Jesus is alive, there was no portion of Israel that was even considered lawless. It was all considered under law. But they had a lot of their judicial proceedings all took place in what was known as the Sanhedrin. Not necessarily, right now, I'm not talking about the big Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. I'm talking about the little Sanhedrins that were scattered throughout Israel. If you had a population in a town that was greater than 120, you had a, a Sanhedrin that had 23 judges in it. So 120 plus, 23 judges, and there was always an odd number. That way you could come to a decision. If you had a town that was less than 120, you chose some members who were elders in your society to be judges for your community. And once again, always an odd number, three, five, seven. But the one that we often talk about is the Great Sanhedrin, which is the, would be known as the Supreme Court of the Sanhedrins that was in Jerusalem itself. They had 70 uh, members on that Sanhedrin, plus, of course, the high priest, which gave it 71, which is an odd number, so judgments could be made and, and um, proceedings could be decided. And they had put a number of different things into place to make sure things were fair and just to avoid corruptions. For instance, all trials were to be public trials, not private trials, so people could know what was going on. There was no accusations that were ever accepted against a person unless there was at least two to three witnesses. And if you were a false witness, you really got in trouble. 
Deuteronomy chapter 19 talks about that. If you were a false witness lying in court, then what you were seeking to have done to that person that you were um, witnessing against was automatically done to you. So if you were a false witness in a murder trial, guess what happened to you? You lost your life. Now that's something we don't have in our current judicial system. False witnesses can lie and then they get away with it and there's no repercussions. Though I would say if they added this little Deuteronomy 19 passage to our current legal system, it would probably cut down a lot of what happens in court. A couple other things. Uh, if you were, the death penalty was enacted. The death penalty couldn't take place for at least 24 hours after this, until 24 hours after the decision. That way, if there was any extra uh, exculpatory evidence that came forward, there was some time to allow that to happen. The witness in a murder trial had to be the first to throw the stone. That way, if you were a witness so that would cause somebody's death, you had to help carry out their death and be the first ones to do that. Just an extra added measure of uh, truth and justice. By the way, no trials were allowed to take place at night. And if a trial began during the day, it could not continue into the night. You had to be fresh and it had to be at your best. No judicial proceedings could be held on a holiday, such as the Passover. And these were just some of the things they had in place to make sure their judicial system was just, fair, and true. Now that I've told you about the Jewish judicial system, I need to let you know that every single one of those things that I have just mentioned, that they had in place to ensure justice and fairness, was broken at the trial of Jesus. Every single thing about Jesus' trial was illegal in every possible way. So much for a system of justice that's committed to truth and fairness when they throw Jesus under the bus. Let's go ahead and read how they do that. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Stand out of reverence as I read God's word. We're going to begin Mark chapter 14, verse 53. I'll start there. And they led Jesus to the high priests. And all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this, his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. 
And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of who you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. That ends the reading of the word. You can be seated. As you can see, the, the same event is looked at from two angles. It takes place during the same time period. First we see it from Jesus' perspective, and then we'll see it from Peter's perspective. Jesus, who is a man who's incredibly courageous under pressure and speaks the truth. Peter, who becomes a coward under pressure and repeatedly tells a lie to save his life. So let's begin with uh, Jesus. Jesus models spiritual courage under pressure. We're going to move through this, by the way, very quickly because we have a lot of text to cover. So we're going to be moving fast today. The first thing you know that's really illegal about this, did you realize they had already decided the outcome before they had the trial? <laughs> that Jesus had to die, but they didn't have a crime for which to kill him? That's sort of an, a, a miscarriage of justice right there at the very beginning. And it begins with this. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Well, the chief priests, elders, and scribes coming together, that's the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish Supreme Court. And when it says they're coming together, that does not necessarily mean all 70 of them came together at that time. What they needed was a quorum. Just like when we have a meeting, you have to have a quorum. So they at least have a quorum together. We also know that they had been together earlier that night because they were the same people who had decided to act on Judas's information that now was the time to, to arrest Jesus. But uh, what we find is, while they're assembling in what is Caiaphas's house, there's actually a pretrial that takes place. It's not found in the Gospel of Mark. It's found in the Gospel of John. So I'm briefly going to jump over to the Gospel of John and show you about this pretrial. It's uh, John chapter 18. It's Jesus' arraignment. It's before Annas, who is going to try to come up with some charges that will hopefully be worthy of um, taking his life. So jumping over to John chapter 18 for the pretrial. The band of soldiers and their captain and the authors of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas is the name of the current high priest, but first he's being brought to Annas. And, 
And if you wonder, who is Annas? Annas had served as high priest about 20 years prior. He had served for five to six years until the Romans had forcibly deposed him. I don't know why they forced him out, but they did. Uh, but the next five high priests were his own sons. So he had his fingers and all that took place. In fact, Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, was his son-in-law. So he was pulling all the strings behind the scenes. You want to think of Annas as he's the mafia boss. He's sort of the godfather behind the scenes. He's the evil brain behind the operations of the temple. And they're going to have to come up with a charge that's worthy of murder. So while they're assembling in Caiaphas's house, go to Annas. Annas, you'll think of something. And that is what's going on here. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Annas was trying to get Jesus to self-incriminate. They have no crime, they have no witnesses, they have no evidence, so maybe Jesus will say something while under oath that I can charge him with. Incidentally, this is completely illegal by the Jewish system. It's also illegal in our system. The Fifth Amendment guarantees you're not allowed to be incriminated uh, on something you say when there's no crime and there's no witnesses. This is how evil Annas is, trying to find a way to make Jesus self-incriminate. But Jesus is a little smarter than that. He knows what's going on. This is what he says. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret, so why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is like, I'm not going to self-incriminate. Just find a witness. Somebody come forward and show me what I've done wrong. There's nobody there. And then it says this. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I've said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? And Jesus is right. Well, all I said is bring a witness. I'm not going to testify against myself. Jesus remains completely silent. So Annas gets completely frustrated. He cannot find a crime worthy of death. This is the evil brain behind the whole operations. So what does he do? gives up and sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the high priest, without a crime. That's what it says in John next. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. John chapter 18, verse 15, tells us that uh, the Sanhedrin is meeting in Caiaphas' house. It's meeting in the middle of the night, roughly 1 a.m. in the morning. Major big-time illegal, according to the Jewish system. The only place they're allowed to meet is in the temple, in a place called the Hall of Judgment, and everything has to take place publicly during the day. This is in Caiaphas' house, privately during the night. 
also this is taking place during Passover, which is a holiday, which is also another complete illegality because you're not allowed to have these things take place during a holiday. Before we go any further, uh, what Mark does is he gives us a glimpse of Peter. We'll just read about it and keep him sort of in, in place in our mind because we'll come back to him in the future. It says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. This is crazy. You military guys, like high price or high risk operations, this is about as high risk as you go. It gets worse once we start to study this. Caiaphas's house is a walled-off compound with entry at a gate. Most likely there are four large rectangular buildings inside with a courtyard, open-air courtyard. So Peter has managed, by the way, to get inside of this courtyard. He is at that fire warming himself. And who is next to him but the soldiers? About an hour before, these are the soldiers who arrested Jesus. So he is with them at the fire with his hood over his head, trying to be close to Jesus, but in a high-risk operation. And who had cut somebody's ear off in that arrest? Peter. And who is now standing amongst the soldiers? Peter. Pretty crazy. Let's go back to Jesus for now. Peter will be exciting when we get to him in a little bit. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Remember, they've already decided on the outcome, which is going to be the death penalty. Annas can't find a charge against him, so they decide we're going to get some witnesses against him. And the only way you're going to get witnesses is false witnesses. So the picture is, we have the members of the Jewish Supreme Court running around in the middle of the night, getting people out of bed, trying to get them to come and be a witness against Jesus. Shows you what scoundrels they actually are. So much for a good judicial system. Matthew, by the way, in the parallel account, tells us a little bit more about these witnesses. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking what kind of testimony? False testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They're seeking to find liars. So much for truth and justice. What do you think would motivate a liar to get out of bed at 1 o'clock in the morning? Money. They paid Judas money to betray Jesus. Later on, they're going to pay the Roman soldiers to be quiet about the resurrection of Jesus. Now they're paying false witnesses to lie about Jesus. This is illegal in every single way. Are you seeing it all come out? And then it says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We've heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. When you get people up who are liars that you're bribing at one o'clock in the morning, and you have no time to prepare them, and you throw them on the witness stand and tell them to lie, how well do you think they keep their story straight? 
not well at all. They are falling apart all over the place on the witness stand in the middle of the night. Uh, even the one thing that's sort of close, which is Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll build another in three days, that's actually a misquote. It comes from John chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, because it says right after that, and the temple he had spoken of was his body, not the physical building. So you know how they do this in the media? They like to take somebody and they just take a little phrase that they said and say, look what they said, and they sort of misquote them by taking it out of context. It's exactly what they were doing with Jesus misquoting him and taking him out of context. Selective editing. Incidentally, notice the only people that they are finding as witnesses are those who will accuse Jesus. They don't bring forward anyone who would be a defendant of Jesus. It's not just. All accusers, no defendants. The whole thing is illegal. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testifying against you? Like, Jesus, you haven't said anything the whole time. Aren't you going to answer these charges against you? And you can see Jesus is like, I really don't have to right now. You're doing a pretty good job of messing the whole thing up yourself. Nobody can seem to agree. Everything's falling apart. This is not going well at all. Like, this is what we find Jesus did at this point. Mark 14, 61. And he remained silent and made no answer. And if you're a student of the scriptures, you'll know that that's exactly what was said in the book of Isaiah about Jesus and how he would be in this trial. It's a complete miscarriage of justice. Most of us would be real quick to speak about this, but Jesus is quiet. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The whole trial is going to pieces. They're not going to be able to kill Jesus in the morning, which is what they're committed to. So at this point, Caiaphas does his Hail Mary pass. He stands up, and he says, maybe I can get Jesus to incriminate himself by claiming that he is God. If you've been through the, this Gospel of Mark with us, you know there's a few times where he has said that uh, sort of indirectly. He's sometimes more directly than others. The Gospel of John, by the way, is filled with direct claims to be God all the way through. And so he's going to try and get Jesus to incriminate himself by claiming that he is God. And this is what he says. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Tell me who you really are. Matthew's parallel account has a little bit more information. And Matthew tells us it actually went a little bit more detailed. And Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the God. Son of God. Adjure means I put you under oath to tell the truth. I put you under oath to tell us the truth. Are you the Son of God? Which is interesting because the people who are complete liars, who are doing the complete miscarriage of justice, are trying to put Jesus under oath so he would say the truth. When the whole time Jesus is the only one saying the truth in this trial. And Jesus answers him. 
And his answer is probably the clearest statement about his identity so far in this entire gospel. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Even the beginning, this phrase, I am, it's known as the Tetragrammaton in um, Greek. He actually uses the name of God, the name Yahweh, translated into Greek. That's who I am. I am, yes, and I am God himself. And then he adds to it. He says, and by the way, he combines two other scripture references. Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel chapter 7. Let me read for you what Psalm 110 says. David wrote this. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, to people who are called Lord, to people who are called God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's a second person called God who is sitting at God's right hand who will be there until all of his enemies are made into his footstool. Jesus says, that's me. Whoa. And then he goes to Daniel chapter 7 and throws that in there. And you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel chapter 7 talks about one like a Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, who is given the right to rule the universe, all the created beings. A man is given that right. And that man will one day return on the clouds of heaven to judge every one. Jesus says, I'm the one who's God. That's my identity. I'm the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who will have ultimately everyone under my feet. I will one day actually return to judge you. You are currently judging me, but one day I will judge you and judge everyone. So what do you think they did at that point? Do you think they lost it? They lose it big time. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? He's lying through his teeth. Except he conveniently forgets that what has Jesus been doing for the last three years? Healing thousands of people with just a touch and a word. Raising the dead. Calming storms at just a word. Making food to feed thousands out of nothing. These are all things that only who can do? God can do. Conveniently forgets all of that. And then it says, You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Here's another miscarriage of justice in the Jewish legal system. The way it was to work is that uh, everyone who was in the Sanhedrin was to cast their vote individually, and it was to go from the youngest members to the oldest members. That way the youngest members wouldn't follow the oldest members because the oldest members went last. The votes were not cast individually. It was mob justice. All at once they said, he needs to die. The crime, by the way, is blasphemy because he claims to be God. Next week, when we get into the Roman trial, 
we'll find the level of corruption continues. Because when they bring him to the Romans, do they bring him on the charge of blasphemy, a person claiming to be God? They switch the charges. Look what it says about next week's section with the Romans. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is, a, is Christ a king. We brought him before you, Pilate, because he's telling people not to pay their taxes and that he wants to replace Caesar as the king. No, he doesn't. You change the game once again. You guys are complete liars and thieves. Now, how do these 70 men, the top judicial men in the nation, in the Jewish Supreme Court, then begin to treat Jesus? The only one who's actually telling the truth. This is what it says. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Spitting on someone's face is a sign of extreme disrespect. And imagine the bag they put over his head when these older men began striking him, one after the other on the face. And Jesus' nose, no doubt, broke. And the blood ran down his face. And blood was coming out of his mouth. And his eyes, I'm sure, were bruised. And if you think that the older men may not have been able to achieve that, remember, what did the guards do? The temple guards, the Roman soldiers, the trained, strong, young men. They followed suit and began beating Jesus in the face. The only man who was telling the truth on that night. It was a complete miscarriage of justice. Jesus, a man of incredible courage, told the truth when he knew it would cost him his life. What about Peter? What was going on with him at the very same time? Peter models cowardice under pressure to escape the consequences. Jesus' trial before the Jews took place approximately between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. At the same time, in Caiaphas' house, while Jesus is on the second story of one of those buildings in Caiaphas' house, Peter is down below in the courtyard, remember, around the fire, warming himself with the Roman soldiers and Jewish soldiers around him. And he's willing to lie to preserve his life. Some of you may wonder, well, is Peter even a Christian? Yes, he's a Christian. What it is, is he gets under pressure, and he's willing to lie to save his own skin. And you're going to see, it's a huge amount of scary pressure. Folks, we lie under pressure on much less things, don't we? So don't say that Peter's not a Christian. He's a Christian who cracked under pressure, which is the same thing that we do every day of the week. Here we go. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Remember how this house would have looked? It's a walled-off house with a, with, with a wall around the outside, most likely four rectangular buildings on the inside with an open-air courtyard in the center. There's a gate that you have to get through to even be able to get inside of the building. And you wonder, why is Peter even there? Well, to Peter's credit, he loves Jesus. 
he's trying his best to sort of be there for Jesus. So this is a very high-risk individual operation to try and get into the house of Caiaphas to be close to Jesus during this trial. He had to even get past security at the gate. John chapter 18, verse 16 tells us how he got past security, that John was actually a friend of the high priest, and John vouched for Peter to get Peter past the gate security so he could get inside. This servant girl, a young girl, as Peter was there in the fire warming himself, and I picture he had his hood over his head, trying to be as inconspicuous as possible, in the glow of the fire's light, she kept looking at him and kept staring at him. And then all of a sudden, she realized... I know you. I recognize you. You are one of his apostles. You can see this in the next section here. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. In my estimation, and I could be wrong, I think this took Peter completely off guard. I think Peter thought he had pulled things off pretty well at this point. Nobody recognized him when he was there. And I think as that girl, and this is more um, clear in some of the other Gospels, kept staring at him and kept looking at him, and you can see that start to click in her mind. He's like, "Uh, uh uh-oh, I think we're going to have some problems here. He was surprised, and he was scared, because he realized that he's around the fire with soldiers that are having their, that have swords. And this is what it says. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Can you imagine what it was like when she said this out loud, loud enough so the, old, the other soldiers around the fire would hear it and say, You're one of them! I I think that the soldiers probably went from warming their hands at the fire, putting their hands on their swords, and Peter's going, I think we have a problem, Houston. And he began lying like crazy to get out of it. I picture his heart pounding through his chest at this point. And he knows he's in trouble. So he moves away from the fire, it says, into the gateway. So he goes from the fire in the center of Caiaphas' house right by the gateway of the entrance. So he can sort of escape if he needs to, try and run out the exit door, hopefully in the darkest place where nobody else can recognize him. But it doesn't go that way. Then it continues. The servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. Now Matthew, he tells us in this recounting that it's actually a different servant girl at this point that recognizes him as he's standing in the shadows trying to get away from recognition. And she blurts out, I know you. Like, weren't you one of the guys who was with Jesus in the temple courts all throughout this week when he was teaching? At this point, I think Peter moves from being a surprised person who tells a liar under pressure to calculating and deciding he's going to continue to tell his lies under pressure. 
And it says here, and he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. This third one is interesting because they recognize him as a Galilean. How do they know that? According to Matthew 26, 73, they recognized him as from Galilee because his accent gave him away. The longer he lied and talked, the more people realized that he's actually lying and not telling the truth. It gets interesting from the Gospel of John. John chapter 18, verse 26 tells us that the bystander in this third one who recognized Jesus was Malchus's relative. Do you remember Malchus from last week? He was the guy that Peter cut the ear off of only about an hour before. And that Jesus healed that ear? Malchus's relative is the one who recognizes Peter. What do you think Peter's feeling like at this point? Any pressure? Freaking out? Major big time. So for him, he says, now is my time to tell my biggest whopper of a lie yet. And that's exactly what he does. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man whom you speak, of whom you speak. In other words, I swear to God that I do not know this guy. And then it says, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And Luke tells us an interesting angle on this. It says in Luke 22, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. At that point, Jesus, who was on the second floor for the trial, who had been beaten with a bag over his head, had been brought down, the bag had been taken off, his face was bloody, he was bleeding, he was covered with sweat and blood from the Garden of Gethsemane, he was being led across the courtyard, and Peter and Jesus' eyes met in that moment. Jesus, who was beaten and bloodied and going to his death because he told the truth, and Peter, who was <laughs> without injury because he was going to tell a lie to save his life. And I wonder if Peter had these words go through his mind that Jesus had spoken earlier. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now, looking at my time, I'm going to have to really just give you these last three applications quickly. Number one, what lessons can be learned? Don't be like Peter and become overconfident in my spiritual strength. Peter was incredibly confident in himself, didn't realize that he could easily fall, just like you and me. When we're put under the right pressure, in the right place, and the right time, even those who are most committed to Jesus can fall away from Jesus. Number two, as I follow Christ, expect there will be times when I need to choose between costly courage and cowardly denial. Be prepared to follow Jesus and make the costly choice. Mark intentionally didn't just tell us about 
Jesus' trial, but he intentionally told us about, about Peter at the same time to challenge us. Whose path are we going to follow when we're put under pressure to deny Christ? Jesus, who would courageously speak the truth, or Peter, who would deny Jesus to save his life? And lastly, this is very important. We serve a gracious God of second chances. When we fail him, he is eager to restore us. We only need to confess our sin, repent, and run to him. You would think this would be the end of Peter, but when you go to John chapter 21, we find that Peter has confessed his sin, he's repented of his sin, and what does Jesus do? Forgives him, restores him. I'm having trouble hearing you. Not you. And uses him as a leader of the early church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this long passage. I ask that you would help us to be courageous like Jesus uh, when we're put under pressure, to speak the truth and to uh, tell the truth about our love for you, Jesus, not to be cowardly like Peter and to deny you. But even those times when we do fail you, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are completely forgiving when we confess our sin and run to you. You're willing to forgive us, restore us, and can continue to love us and use us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.